Welcome back to 10 and 20, official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust, where we talk about Tennessee history in roughly 20 minutes. My name's Brad. And my name is Sarah. This week we are interviewing Tina Jones, who has been doing some research on enslaved men in Williamson County who fought for the United States during the Civil War. We met Tina at St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Franklin, Tennessee, which is historic in its own right. So hopefully you enjoy the interview. Thank you so much for listening. I wear three hats, really. Okay. So so my name's Tina Jones. I am a board member of African American Heritage Society, and I co-chair our historic committee. And then I also run a program called Spring Street Seniors at St. Paul's Episcopal Church in downtown Franklin. And then I also, on my own time, run a project called Slaves to Soldiers, where I'm raising money to install pavers at the Veterans Park in downtown Franklin at Five Points. You were telling us right before we started about how you got plugged into the community here and how mm-hmm. you got interested. Could you just give a brief synopsis yeah. of that for the audience? My husband, Roger, and I moved to Franklin in about 1999. And we live in the Hinchyville neighborhood, which is Franklin's first subdivision. And it's right on the west side of downtown Franklin, right near St. Paul's. So it's kind of right between the Natchez Street neighborhoods and the Hard Bargain neighborhoods of Franklin, which are two historically African-American neighborhoods. And when we moved there, we kind of felt like those were our neighbors as well. And we didn't really know how to reach out to our new neighbors. Very soon after moving to Franklin and we started attending St. Paul's, we were at church one Sunday and our our priest at the time, Bob Copperthwaite, made an announcement at church that they were looking for someone to take over an outreach program for senior citizens who many of them lived in these two neighborhoods, Natchez Street and Hard Bargain. So Roger and I just felt like that was something we could do. It would be a great way to get to know these new neighborhoods and it was new neighbors. And it was a program that provided once a month a hot meal bingo, crafts, just activities for senior citizens. So we we took it over. This will be our 18th year running it. And in the beginning, it was not, we were not very good at it. We, <laughs> it was lean. We, um, we just didn't know what we were doing. But every year since it's gotten better and stronger, we bring in speakers, authors. We sometimes will do a movie. We've seen Red Tails. We've gone over to the Franklin Theater and watched the movie The Help. Now we have live music every month. But about... Maybe 10 years ago, I added a genealogy piece to it where I very naively, I didn't really know anything about genealogy. I knew nothing about African-American genealogy. I thought it would be interesting to help many of these seniors trace their family history. Ancestry had become real popular. I got an account and I said, let's see what we can find out. And I didn't understand how difficult genealogy can be for African-American families. So I told them all, I gave them all a paper family tree that just had, you know, yourself, your mom and dad, your grandparents, your great-grandparents. And I told them all to try to fill it in. And some of them could only get back to maybe 1900. Some of them could get farther, but obviously nobody could get past the Civil War. And then it just really hit me how, how hard that is. And so I went home and I created an ancestry tree for about 50 little old ladies, and I was hooked. I started learning a lot about African-American genealogy, and then I realized that you can't be good at genealogy, any kind of genealogy, without understanding the place where your ancestors lived, the context, what was happening to them. And I started learning a lot about Williamson County. And one thing that I learned that I didn't know, I knew a lot. I loved history. We live in an old house. I learned a lot about the Battle of Franklin. I learned a lot about Williamson County, but I didn't know that more than half of Williamson County's population was in 
enslaved when the Civil War broke out. There were 12,000 slaves in Williamson County in the 1860 census, and the Civil War started in 1861. I just didn't know that. I don't think most people know that. That's something <clears throat> that we have on signage at both <clears throat> Carter House and Cardington, and I say that on my regular tours, and whenever we do, I, I pause for a second because people's jaws, like, Hit the dro- floor. Drop for a yeah. second because they realize most of the people in this area were enslaved. Yeah. And it shocks people. And right. it wasn't just Williamson County either. It's most of Middle Tennessee yeah. counties that that's. There, were, were, there were three counties in Tennessee where that was true, where the more than half the population was enslaved. And so that just really surprises people. And it surprised me. And so I just started learning things like that. And then that kind of information really helped me with my genealogy. And then about three years ago, it was the anniversary of the Civil Rights Movement. And I was doing a program for my seniors. I tried to not, not all of them are crazy history buffs like I am. So I try not to make every month we get together be all about genealogy and history because some of them prefer crafts and you know some of them prefer the music but at least in February we tried to focus on this and so we were having a program on the civil rights movement and we were talking about their memories about the schools being desegregated and it was great and it was also another fascinating and not much discussed topic and at the end of the month at the end of the session one of my guests asked a question about, she said, oh, you know, this is great. And I'm so glad we're talking about this, but we never talk about the Civil War and what it was like for Black people during the Civil War. Which I could assume could be somewhat of an intimidating question. Right. For them, for an African-American here. And she said, we were never taught about this in school. And she said, were there any Black soldiers? And I said, you know, that's a great question. I'm going to do some more research about that and I'll come back next month. And I really just dove off the deep end into this giant rabbit hole. (laughs) And my kids ate pizza for a month (laughs) and practically developed scurvy. That was really the beginning of a complete obsession for me. And I took myself back to college and learned all about the official record of the War of the Rebellion. And my poor husband would look over at me in bed and be like, what happened to my wife? You know, she's no longer reading Martha Stewart Living. She's reading like about, you know, battles and things. And but what I learned was I found this this article that said that there were three African-American men from Williamson County who served in the U.S. Army and the federal forces and five men from Williamson County who'd been black who served in the Navy. And now that I knew that there were 12,000 slaves in Williamson County, I knew that that number had to have been low. I knew now from my research that there was a federal fort in Franklin. There's Fort Granger right near Pinkerton Park. Mm -hmm. There was a fort in Brentwood. There was forts in Triune. I knew that this whole area was under federal control, mostly for most of the Civil War. I knew that the second Confiscation Act, which went into effect early in the war, had encouraged African Americans to flee their plantations and their farms and their businesses and flee to federal forts early in the war. I just knew that there were all these opportunities for African Americans to join the army. I just knew that that number had to be really low. 20,000 black men served in the army in Tennessee, just from Tennessee. That's crazy because I've read that by war's end, it was around 200,000. In the country. In the country. So that's that's what I'm getting at. Around 10% of them were from from Tennessee. Tennessee. So I just was like, well, how can that be? If 20,000 black men from Tennessee served and only three from Williamson County. So I just, I went on Ancestry and I figured out kind of how to hack Ancestry and do this kind of reverse search. And I ran the search and within 30 seconds, there they were. There they were. There were all their names. 
And I was shocked. And I was like, there they just were hiding in plain sight. And I don't mean to like disparage other researchers, because I also came along at a time when records had been digitized. That made my job a lot easier. I mean, if you would tried to do this 10 years ago, it would have been really virtually impossible. So I just opened a Word document and I started copying. I was just started typing out their names, copying everything I could, and then started analyzing the data. And once I found them, I wanted to tell their stories. And I just started researching them after I had their names and started figuring out patterns to where they enlisted, when they enlisted, how old they were, what regimens they served in. I just wanted to tell their stories. And then I started a blog. There's about 300 of them that I have found so far, but I know that that's not a complete record because the records are not complete. And that blog is ongoing. Yes. And it's called... The best way to find it is to go to slaves to soldiers T-O, not the number two, right. slavestosoldiers.com. And that's the website that I use to sell the pavers. And while you're there, go ahead and buy a paver for one of them. And then at the bottom of that website, you can see an F for my Facebook page, and then a T for Twitter, and then a B for blogger. And if you click on the B for the blog, it'll take you right to the blog. We've realized that what this podcast is, when it's at its best, is telling the stories of individuals. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like that's kind of how you got interested in, in history or in genealogy as well. So we've asked you to put together some stories of the individual soldiers that you you found that are particularly interesting. So if you could just go ahead and share, that'd be great. Yeah, well, I decided that I was going to share the story of a man named Granville Scales with you today. And one of the reasons I picked him is because last week I broke my collarbone and <laughs> I only can use one arm and Granville Scales. And your, your um, bad arm as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I broke my right, I broke my right collarbone and I'm right, a right hand, I'm right handed. So I can't use my right arm at all. And Granville Scales lost his arm in the Civil War. He was shot in the arm and had to have it amputated. And so I'm very sympathetic to Granville Scales right now because <laughs> what he did with his life after losing his arm is really remarkable. But Granville was born around January of 1845 here in Williamson County. His parents were Elnora and Jack Scales, and they were also from here in Williamson County. I believe that he was enslaved and they were all enslaved by a man named J.G. Scales in the College Grove area of Williamson County. And he he was sort of a typical Williamson County slave owner. He had about 20 slaves in that area, and he had an overseer who worked for him, who helped him on his farm. And in the 1860 census, Granville would have been about 15 years old, and he does show up in the slave schedule that year, if that's him, as a 15-year-old black boy on the census. When the Civil War broke out, Granville enlisted in the 44th U.S. Colored Infantry. He was down in Chattanooga by that time, and the federal government was very invested in building railroads. One of the reasons that Nashville was so important to the federal government during the Civil War was for, it was a transportation hub. They were using the rivers and the railroads, so they were impressing black men to build railroads as well as forts. And I think that Granville was taken to build the railroad line down to Chattanooga. When he got down there, he was enlisted in the 44th. The 44th is one of my favorite black regiments because mm -hmm. they were put together by a man named Thomas Jefferson Morgan. The 44th was lucky enough to have a chaplain named Lycurgus Railsback. That's who a was, great name. Isn't yes. that a fabulous name? <laughs> and Lycurgus Railsback was a Presbyterian minister. He was an abolitionist from Indiana. Anna. He loved to sing, and he was really a teacher at heart, from what I can tell, because soon after he received his appointment to the 44th, he asked for a furlough, and he went back to Indiana and Ohio 
and he went to all his friends and he asked them to provide him with hymnals and books because he wanted to teach all of the men in his regiment how to read. He used singing as a way of teaching them to read. And so the 44th became known as the singing regiment. And whenever they would march, they would sing. Granville was lucky enough to learn how to read and write while he was in the 44th, as did all the men who were under Thomas Jefferson Morgan. I just love that image of him. And like Hergis Rails back would end up being very important to Granville Scales. Granville was in Company B. He was 17 years old when he enlisted. Wow. And what's interesting about the 44th, the 44th, if you ever Google them, one of the things that always pops up is these two photographs of a man named Hubbard Pryor. A photographer was in Chattanooga and he took these before and after photographs of Hubbard Pryor, who was another slave who enlisted in the 44th. And it was he took these photographs like about a week before Granville enlisted. And he took a picture of him in the clothes that he was wearing before he was enlisted. And then immediately after he changed into his uniform. And so you sort of see this picture of him in the clothes that he would have been wearing as a slave. And then what he was wearing after he enlisted. And wow. the difference in the picture of him, his posture, his um, his whole demeanor has changed. Wow. And you can just, it's very easy to imagine that's what Granville would have looked like. What a transformation yeah. it would have been for him to go from being a railroad laborer to an enlisted private in the United States Army. How far apart did you say those photos were? Uh, the photographs are just minutes yeah. apart. Wow. But, <laughs> but Granville enlisted about two weeks apart from Hubbard Pryor. Okay. And his yeah. uniform would have been identical. So it's very easy to put Granville in Hubbard Pryor's shoes. Right. Yeah. We'll sh- if it's cool, we'll share those pictures. Oh, yeah. So yeah. And you it. can share a link to this post oh, yeah. so everyone could read all about Granville's okay. life. That's perfect. Thomas Jefferson Morgan, who organized the 44th, kept a detailed uh, memoir, and he talks all about organizing the 44th. He talks about how every man, when they would go out on picket duty, would take their coffee cup and also a book and a pencil, mm-hmm. and they would practice their reading and writing. So Granville was probably just like that, was one of those men reading and writing. Soon after he enlists, so he enlists in March, that fall of 1864, Company B and some a few other companies of the 44th are sent to Dalton, Georgia, just a few hundred men. They're there with their white officers. So you have to remember back then the U.S. colored troops are made up of black soldiers, privates, mostly a few sergeants and corporals, and then all white officers. They're garrisoning this tiny town when John Bell Hood's Army of Tennessee, the Confederate Army of Tennessee, is starting to make their way from Atlanta back heading toward Franklin. Mm-hmm. This is in advance of the Battle of Franklin. They swing toward Dalton. 40,000 men converge on Dalton and attack it. So there's about 600 enlisted African-American soldiers and 150 white officers. They're terrified and they think this is it. And they're going to die. <laughs> Colonel Lewis Johnson was in command, and he decides to just surrender. He doesn't want to take any chances. But the black soldiers want to fight. They don't want to surrender because they think they're going to be killed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they're pretty upset with For Colonel. For good reason. Right. You know, like that's, that's not the first time in the war that something like that had happened. Right. And they think they're just going to all be rounded up and murdered. But Colonel Lewis Johnson decides that he would rather take his chances with the white Confederate officers, and he surrenders. And they all surrender. And it it works out a little bit better for them. And I have all the details of it on the blog. I won't go into it because we'd be here all day. But what ends up happening is that the black men who, many of them are from North Georgia, those who they could identify are returned to slavery. Their um, slave owners are found and they're returned to slavery. Some of them are marched off to Confederate fortifications 
and work camps in Georgia and Mississippi. And they end up staying there until even after the war ends in late 1865. Um, the description is that they were there until May of 1865 in a sick, broken down, naked and starved condition. And so that's what happens to Granville Scales. Mm-hmm. I mean, he gets taken. While they're being marched off, they're forced to tear up railroad lines, some of which they mm-hmm. had been building a year <laughs> earlier. Some of the men refuse to do that and they're shot right there on the railroad line. Some of them are too sick or weak to do it. And then they're also just shot and killed right there on the railroad line. In a strange coincidence, one of the Confederate cavalry officers who helped capture Granville Scales and his comrades was Corporal Newton Cannon, who was right here from Franklin. In his memoir, in Newton Cannon's memoir, he wrote about that day and his interaction that he had with Colonel Lewis Johnson, who was at command that day. And he wrote this. He said, at Dalton, we captured a stockade with a regiment of Negro troops with white officers, a Colonel Johnson in command. We marched them all night to prevent their recapture through Snake Creek Gap to some place where our army had stopped and turned them over to the provost guard. I allowed Colonel Johnson to ride my horse while I walked and led him a part of the way. He seemed to appreciate my kindness and said he believed I had saved his life and presented me with a fine pair of saddlebags. <laughs> so you can see there's this comradeship between the white officers, even though they're on opposite sides of the war. But the black men are not afforded that same level of you know, friendship, right? Yeah. right? But what's amazing is that Granville manages to escape. Wow. wow. And he gets away. And he doesn't sneak home or just hide out for the rest of the war, but he goes back to Chattanooga and he re-ups with the 44th. The 44th's been decimated. 250 members of the 44th were re-enslaved. Another 350 men were put to work by the Confederates, building railroads, working as POWs for the rest of the war. Only 125 of them survived till the end of the war. But Granville did get back. They put together a much smaller 44th. There's like a little kind of lean, mean 44th. So he enlisted, was captured, Mm -hmm. basically sent back to slavery. Or to an enslaved state, but escapes. Yeah. Just to do it all over again, to jump right back into it. Yeah, back into the army. Wow. He goes back into the army. Yeah. Pretty amazing. So he gets back to Chattanooga. They put the 44th back together. Now there's just 300 of them. They were close to 1,000. The Battle of Franklin happens November 30th. The Union forces here have gone back to Nashville. And General Thomas, who's in command in Nashville, starts calling up all the troops to start fortifying Nashville. Many of the troops that he's calling to Nashville are U.S. colored troops. So he calls in the 44th. Granville gets put on a train with the 44th and also the 14th sent toward Nashville. They're headed in. They're all, they make it all, almost all the way to Nashville. They get to what's called the Mill Creek Trestle, which is kind of where Antioch is today. And their train is kind of breaking down. They're having engine trouble. And what they don't know is that the Mill Creek Trestle, there was a blockhouse there where the trestle was. So it's like a, the trestle is like a little bridge crossing the Mill Creek and was being defended by a small group of U.S. Army soldiers defending this little bridge. Those soldiers don't know that they've, <clears throat> sorry, that they've been surrounded by a Confederate cavalry unit. And the Confederate cavalry is getting ready to attack these Union soldiers. And just as they're getting ready to attack, this little broken down train full of the 44th chugs in. Terrible timing. (laughs) So, (laughs) with poor Granville on the train. (laughs) So, just as the train rolls in, the cavalry attacks. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And it's kind of up on a ridge. So, the men have to jump out 
from this great height and there's they have very little ammunition. They fight all night long until the very early morning and Granville ends up being shot in the arm very badly. They wait all night long and the uh, union officers finally decide we're, we're going to die here. We have to make some kind of dramatic stand and they decide to sneak out at three o'clock in the morning and they walk all the way back to Nashville. But they have to leave their wounded. Which so, means... Granville. So, like, Kirgis rails back, and the surgeon stay with them. Even though they were okay? Yeah, even though they were not wounded, but they're not going to leave them behind. Granville and a group of other wounded men are left behind in this blockhouse. The other men sneak out. So dawn comes, and the Confederates are ready to take up fighting again, and they realize that all that's left behind are these two white officers and the wounded. The description is really long, but it's worth reading. It's on my blog about, about how that happens, about how they discover that they've been duped and that all they have are these wounded. Now, what's really interesting to me is that there's a book called Freedom by the Sword, which goes into incredible detail about the African-American troops during the Civil War. And it talks a lot about this night. And the author of that book believes that these men were then marched to Franklin. I would I would love for that to be true, <laughs> obviously. I'm not entirely sure if that's true. I have Granville's pension record. Granville thinks that his arm was amputated in the field by a Confederate surgeon. Hmm. But I'm not sure if that would have happened. He had his own surgeon with him. It seems more likely to me that his surgeon would have amputated his arm. And I just broke my collarbone. And I can tell you, I wasn't 100% like lucid. So I, and he was shot very badly in the arm and would have lost a lot of blood. So I just don't know if his recollections are totally accurate. But he does say in several different accounts that it was a Confederate surgeon that amputated his arm so maybe that happened on what day it would have been like the next day it's like and the morning after yeah all the morning things. after he says it happened at that blockhouse. he says he was there for three days but all the other records seem to imply that they were marched to franklin and the other the other soldiers give very detailed records about how the confederate soldiers took their shoes which would have been very likely because mm-hmm. they would have not had shoes and these men would have and marched them barefoot to franklin the battle of nashville would have happened they would have been taken to franklin in advance of the retreat on the 17th and 18th when hood's retreat was happening they would have been recaptured by the union soldiers coming through franklin and that does make more sense to me that maybe that's when granville was recaptured along with his comrades, and then he was taken back to Nashville and put in a hospital. I find him back in Nashville on the 19th. So we we know he was captured by Confederates in what is today the Antioch area. Yes. And that he ends up back in Nashville with the Union, with federal, in in federal hospitals. Yeah. But I just don't know that little middle piece, which I would love to know, because we do know that on the 17th and 18th, there are U.S. Colored Troop soldiers here in Franklin, Mm -hmm. in hospitals here in Franklin. We don't know which buildings, but we do know that there are other U.S. Colored Troop soldiers here in hospitals somewhere in Franklin. I would love Granville to be one of them, but I don't know for sure. I can't say that. Granville says that he was still out at Mill Creek having his arm amputated by a Confederate soldier. Okay. But it is a great story. Like, Hergis Railsback was interviewed later, and he gives lots of detail about that day. You know, he doesn't talk about the individual soldiers. Granville, amazingly, he does not take a disability discharge. He stays in the Army, and a month later is back on duty as a musician. 
He, um, a month, I mean, a month having, after having your arm amputated, he becomes the principal musician of the 44th. And he is like the guy with the big, I don't know what you call it, but like a staff and like the bearskin hat. Like Hmm. a lot of those guys had those big hats. That was, that was Granville. He gets sent back to Chattanooga and he's down there leading the band. Within a few months, he takes a furlough and he goes to Huntsville, Alabama. And I suspect that he is courting the woman who will become his wife because another month later he's getting married in Chattanooga. Uh, The woman he marries, her last name was Scales. And so I suspect this is a woman that he knew before the war who was enslaved with him in College Grove area and that he had gone to find her. So that's kind of sweet. Yeah. Yeah. And that he had gone to get her um, and she had maybe been in a contraband camp down there. So they get married. They have several children. They try to farm in the College Grove area. He gets a pension because of his disability. He tries to be a one-armed farmer. Does not work very well for him. His good arm and his shoulder gives him a lot of trouble. He develops like what I think is like a bursitis kind Mm -hmm. of condition. He goes to several doctors in the College Grove area who try to treat it. And it sounds like the treatment does more harm than good. He ends up moving to Nashville, where I think maybe he can get work that's a little less difficult. He buys a lot near St. Cloud Hill, which is the Fort Negley neighborhood on Cannon Street. Builds a house and he and his wife have several children. And then sadly, his wife dies. So he's now a one-armed single dad. He got remarried very quickly. No surprise. After he remarried, he and his new wife move to Kansas. They participate in what was called the Exoduster Movement. Uh, large numbers of African Americans moved to Kansas. Kansas was a place that had been very friendly to African Americans before the Civil War as part of like Bleeding Kansas mm-hmm. and John Brown and the abolitionist movement. And they moved to Kansas. He becomes a guard on the trains. He was guarding gold and silver bullion that was being sent from the mines to Chicago. He was an expressman on these express trains going to Chicago and he would ride these fast trains. He would have been armed to the teeth with his one arm (laughs) with lots of guns. And uh, that's what he did. And he made, uh, it sounds like he made a good living and he was a member of the Kansas Grand Army of the Republic in Topeka, Kansas, where they lived. This was a veterans organization that helped veterans get their pensions. He was an officer of that organization. And interesting, it was the, it was the Fort Pillow Post. Um, of that organization. So anyway, he was he was really influential in that organization. And then in 1889, they moved to Oklahoma, settled in Oklahoma City. He and his second wife had had two boys. They moved there. 1889 was the year of a big land rush. And the 89ers were the people who participated in the homestead land rush. But they did not do that. They were more well-to-do by then. And they took out a mortgage and bought a house in Oklahoma City. They didn't have to be homesteaders. He and his second youngest son started a grocery grocery store business. He was a founding member of a group called the Elite Club, a literary society, a leadership organization of African Americans in Oklahoma City. They settled in an area called the Big Deuce, which is, if you know, Ralph Ellison and the Invisible Man. Yeah. That was the neighborhood that he was writing about in that book. Okay. Oh, very cool. Yeah. And the grocery store that the building where their grocery store was founded and, and 
built in is now being turned into the African American Heritage Museum in Oklahoma oh, City. Oh, neat. Oh, that, yeah. So, that's yeah. Terrible. So he died in his 70s um, and is buried in Oklahoma City, but he has a big headstone there. But it's not a U.S. Color Troop headstone. These men are all eligible for Civil War U.S. Color Troop headstones, but he just has a regular headstone. Any way of knowing why, or is it just how No, it I don't know. I don't know if they didn't realize, or it's a very impressive headstone that he maybe. has. So maybe they wanted him just to have oh, yeah. They had enough money. They, they, could, yeah, they could buy their, their own. own. Yeah. So he, um, he had really quite the incredible life and a nice yeah. um, obituary in the newspaper when he passed away. Well, it's, it's also interesting to me because with a lot of people after the war, former Confederates and formerly enslaved, they feel like they can't just go back to where they used to live. Mm-hmm. And so they push yeah. west. west. Yeah. They push, well, we're going to try and make this new area our mm-hmm. own. And it's, it's neat to hear that he sounds like he's successful. Yes, yeah. he did. He did. Yeah, that the Exoduster movement was very significant, particularly for African Americans from Tennessee. I think that after Reconstruction, there was this huge pushback. Jim Crow and racism came back and, you know, lots of discrimination. And a lot of people left this area and went to Kansas and Oklahoma and North and mm-hmm. West, other places West. His, I love his story because it touches on so many pieces of the African-American story. He's such a great example of yeah. that. Yeah, he really is. That's great. That's exactly what we try and tell with this is yeah. people's stories, but then how they connect with broader national or Tennessee or whatever yeah. stories that affect all of us. Yeah. So that's that's a great one. Well, do you want to do another one? Sure. Sure. Oh, I can't help myself, but my favorite, and people have heard me talk before, have heard me tell Freeman Thomas's story. And Freeman Thomas was born here in Williamson County. Well, so I'm going to have to assume he picks that name. That name is wasn't his original name. No, it was. Everybody wow. asks me that question. His Freeman was his original name. He didn't, it's not, um, he's not trying to make a point with the name Freeman. It was actually, Freeman was actually kind of a common um, name at that time for whites and blacks. His original name was Freeman Crothers. And he was actually my first blog post on my blog. He was the one who who kind of showed me that I could do this, Hmm. that I could research and find their stories because... When I first did that search on Ancestry and found all their names, he wasn't on that list of men who had enlisted from Williamson County. And remember I said that I had found this article that said there were three black men from Williamson County who served in the Army? Well, the reason that people thought there were only three is because there are three United States Color Troop headstones in Williamson County, and they're at the historic Toussaint Louverture Cemetery, mm-hmm. which is the historic African-American cemetery at the corner of Hillsborough Road and Del Rio Pike. One of those three is Freeman Thomas. But there's no man who enlisted in the United States Colored Troops. And I should say... The U.S. US Colored Troops is the name for the segregated part of the United States Army during the Civil War. Right. So these were regular Army privates, corporals, sergeants, but they called it the United States Colored Troops. Right. They usually didn't combine them into established regiments. They started their own... Well, they were regular, they were regiments, they were full regiments, they got the same uniforms, they got the same, after, it took a little bit, they got the same pay eventually, Mm -hmm. in the beginning they didn't, they were regular regiments, but they were just called the U.S. Colored Troops to designate that they were black regiments. So I had my list that I finally put together, I created this Word document with all the men from Williamson County, it was like 280 something when I first did it, and then I had these three men in the, in the cemetery, And so I I matched them up. But then I was like, well, why can't I find this Freeman Thomas? One of the men in the cemetery I figured out was not born here. 
and he settled here after the war. He served in this area and he met his wife. So I was able to find his enlistment. I was like, okay, well, that makes sense. So I found his enlistment and he served in like the 100th U.S. Colored Troops. But I couldn't find a Freeman Thomas anywhere. And that was really bugging me. Well, what I finally figured out was that Freeman Thomas had been born Freeman Carruthers. So, you know, like Carruthers Parkway Mm -hmm. in the Cool Springs area. And he was born on um, May 17th, 1845 in the Cool Springs area. And if you know where Mallory Lane crosses over Cool Springs Boulevard and there's a Walgreens right there. Mm -hmm. Well, there used to be a a little white, a yellow house there. And it was owned by Jim Carruthers. And it's since been moved up to Crockett Park in Brentwood. And the Cool Springs house. Yeah. Pull in on the left-hand side. People can have like weddings, yeah, bridal showers there, whatever. So that was Jim Carruthers' house. Interesting. Yeah. And it's been moved there. And the Carruthers family were large slave owners and they enslaved Freeman and his mother and his siblings. Freeman's father was a Thomas slave. So after the war, Freeman decided he wanted to go by his father's last name. Okay. Okay. So he enlisted under Carruthers. And then after the war, he changed his name to Thomas. So. That was part of the puzzle. And anybody who does puzzles, you know how you get like three or four pieces in a row and you're like, yes. So that was like the rush. And I was like, okay, I can do this. I'm getting good at this. (laughs) And so when I figured that part of Freeman's story out, I thought, okay, this is, I can do this. Along the part of me researching everything I could about Williamson County, I had also been researching something called slave narratives. During the Depression in the 1930s in America, the federal government was trying to put people back to work. And one of the things they did was they hired writers to go out in the United States and interview people. Among the people they were interviewing were former slaves. And they ended up putting together all these interviews in these volumes called Slave Narratives. I've read a handful of those. Yes. Fascinating. They're fascinating. And I decided, because I'm obsessed, <laughs> that I was going to, on my blog put together all the slave narratives that I could find that talked about Williamson County. But there's also Fisk University. Before them, there was a woman there named Ophelia Settles, and she was a sociology professor, a student, and she had fanned out around Middle Tennessee, and she had done this in the 1920s. She was like ahead of the, ahead of her time. <laughs> she worked for Professor Johnson there. The two of them had done these interviews, She had done them anonymously. The WPA ones identified the people they were talking about. Fisk University ones, anonymously. The the interviewees were The interviewees were anonymous. Now, I wonder, I don't know for sure, I wonder if they were anonymous because they thought that people would be more forthcoming, a little more Mm -hmm. candid. I'd I'd read them all. One of them talked about this man who was owned by Jim Carruthers, who served in... The United States Colored Troops. But it gave all this detail about him. And I'd always sort of tucked that in the back of my head. But we didn't know who he was. It was just anonymous. And then fast forward a few years. And I'm researching Freeman Thomas. I am a crazy person. I created an ancestry tree for him. I'm doing all this research about him. I know that he, where he lives. I know his children's names. I know where they work. I know where they move to. I know who they marry. I know everything about his children. And I finally figure out that this slave narrative is Freeman Thomas without 
a shadow of a doubt because at the very end of his narrative of his interview, he talks about how his son moved to St. Louis and worked for the post office and his other son worked at the Andrew Jackson Hotel in Nashville yeah. and his other daughter lived on Franklin Road and was a school teacher. And I, I remember just reading that and saying, this is Freeman Thomas, like 100%. So I was able to, on my blog post about him, give a ton of detail because Freeman was like me. We are good friends. <laughs> uh, very, very chatty. And he gives tons of detail about what it was like being a slave here in Williamson County. He talks about what he ate when he was a slave. He talks about how they were treated. He talks about which slave owners were good feeders. That's what how he talks about it. He talks about how they were punished. He talks about how they worshipped. He talks about how he courted. He was a young teenager. He talks about how awkward it was trying to talk to girls. I mean, he talks... Some things never change. Yeah, some <laughs> things are absolutely universal. I mean, it's just really, really incredible. He talked about his time in the Army. He talked about the Ku Klux Klan. And, I mean, it really wow. gives us so much detail. And so now being able to go back and look at that is so useful. So that's all just background about Freeman. So Freeman's life, one of the really incredible things that he told us in the narrative was that his parents died when he was young. So he lived on this plantation. It was called the Pleasant Exchange Plantation that was in the Cool Springs area. He was basically raised by another slave woman along with a group of other children. And then he got sick. Mr. Crothers said to Mrs. Crothers, you can have him if you can raise him. Like if you can keep him alive, you know. And the doctor was like, just feed him and do your best. So she took him into the house. She took him into that little yellow house and nursed him back to health. And he survived. And when he got to be a young man, he enlisted in the army and went off to war. Before that, he helped build Fort Negley in Nashville. Okay. And he talks about that also, that he was among the hundreds, thousands of African Americans who who were um, conscripted to build Fort Negley. And he does also give us detail about how that was maybe not entirely voluntary. (laughs) (laughs) He says we were put in the regiment and we were forced to build it. So that's that's interesting to hear because I think that out here in Franklin, until recently, we didn't really feel a connection to Fort Negley. But I've been going through the lists of the men who built Fort Negley and finding lots of names from Williamson County. So we now know how many men from Williamson County and maybe women and children also did build Fort Negley. I think what he says is he says, the authorities had me and a good many others at work on the works on Fort Negley. And they took us and put us in the regimen and made soldiers out of us. And so he would have done that, and then he would have enlisted in the 12th U.S. Colored Infantry on August 12th, 1863, and 50 other men from Williamson County enlisted on that same day in that same regiment. Wow. So that sort of tells me that they probably weren't all, like, raising their hands. Yeah. You know, they probably just all brought there and enlisted on the same day. And he says that when he went to the war, he was turning 17. So, again, pretty young. And, and like I said, he served under the, under the name Freeman Crothers. He served mostly along the railroad lines, building the railroads. The 12th would have been down at the Elk River along the Alabama border. They would have guarded and built the bridges. He's, he's very interesting. He talks a little bit about Fort Pillow. I mean, they were not there. But he talks about seeing Confederates being killed in Nashville that had been captured. He would have been out west. He would have been at what was called the Johnsonville Colored Battery when it was attacked there in November of 1864, just before the Battle of Franklin. So he would have he would have seen a fair amount of action. And then he would have been among the troops called back to Nashville for the Battle of Franklin. And he was on Peach Orchard Hill, 
mm-hmm. when they took it on the second day of fighting at the Battle of Nashville. And he was actually shot. He describes in his pension, he was shot in the leg in John Overton's woodlot, he says. Wow. And lay there on the hill until that night when they were able to come get him and take him to a hospital in Nashville, the, the second day of fighting of the Battle of Nashville. And so he was not able to participate in Hood's retreat back through this area, but he was granted a furlough. So he took it. And while he was healing from his injury, and he came back here to Franklin in his blue uniform. And by then, Mr. Crothers, Jim Crothers had died. And Mrs. Crothers, the widow, was still living in that yellow house here in Franklin. And he went to her and she says to him, why are you fighting me? Like, don't you remember when I nursed you back to health when you were a little boy? And he says to her, he says, I'm not fighting you. I'm fighting to be free. And that's just incredible to me. I mean, not only that we have that exchange that he remembered it for us, but that she doesn't really seem to understand what's happened or what role she had in enslaving him. And that he's saying, oh, it's not personal. You know, he's able to sort of take the high road with her and say, I'm not fighting you, but I'm fighting to be free. And then he's so clear about it. Like, this is a fight for my freedom. You oftentimes don't realize that you're doing, you don't realize or you convince yourself that you're not doing something that's bad until it's right in front of you. You In her case, literally right in front of you wearing Standing in a blue uniform. In a blue uniform. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So it it seems like he went back to see her or just to talk to her. I don't know. Or and other people. I mean, that would have been his home. As crazy as that is, in a way, yeah, you know, that was his well, home. Well, home is home, no yeah. matter how awful it was. Yeah. It's still home. And there are other enslaved people there that he yeah. probably felt a connection with. Yeah, and he talks in that interview about how his mother had been buried when she had died. You know, when he was young, she was buried at what's called Farmer's Bluff, and that had always driven me crazy. I was like, where was Farmer's Bluff? Where was Farmer's Bluff? Well, what I figured out finally was that Farmer's Bluff was Harlandsdale Farm. Everybody refers to that farmhouse at Harlandsdale as the Harlan House or the Hayes House. But the farmer who owned Harlandsdale was actually called William Farmer. And so the farm hmm. used to be called Farmer's Farm, I guess. <laughs> and the, the bluff at where the Harper, Harper the River winds through there, that was called Farmer's Bluff. After the Civil War ended, Freeman Thomas moved back there. He was good friends with Mr. Farmer. Uh, or I don't know if I don't know if you want to use the term yeah, okay. f- friends, but William Farmer wrote affidavits on his behalf to help him get a pension. And if you drive down Franklin Road today, there are like little clusters of houses right on Franklin Road, right in front of Harlandsdale. There's a white house with a red metal roof. And Freeman Thomas built that house right after the Civil wow, War. Wow, that's mm. incredible. Mm-hmm. And that was his house. So I wonder if, I don't know if he wanted to live there because his mother's, he says his mother's funeral was preached there at Farmer's Bluff. I don't know if she had been leased there, had worked there, but there was clearly ties there. He said that his, in this interview, he said that his sister's husband had worked for Mr. Farmer, had been a farmer slave. So there was clearly lots of ties to, for him to that area. So that was his house. That was Freeman Thomas's house. So the next time you drive down Franklin yeah. Road, you see that white house with the red roof. That was Freeman yeah. Thomas's house. And he lived to be 91 and he died on his birthday in Franklin. His funeral was held at the Baptist Church right there on the corner of Natchez Street and 9th Avenue. His casket was covered in an American flag 
and it was carried into the church by veterans of World War One and the Spanish-American War. Wow. So he would have been happy about that. Yeah. yeah, that's amazing. I like that. That story is cool for multiple reasons, just because of what it is. It's also cool for me because now whenever I go to Crockett Park right. to play disc golf, I'll see that house. Yes. And or, I'll know the story behind it. Or yes. drive up Franklin Road. Or drive up yes. Franklin Road. You can say, hey, Freeman. Yeah. <laughs> and he's buried again at... To St. Louis Cemetery, yeah. And he has a U.S. Colored Troop headstone. He's one of the three men there. And that would have been very important to him. So you kind of answered this when you quoted him by saying, I'm not fighting you, I'm fighting to be free. But what would you say would be the motivations of the men who did enlist? And I know that people are different, so you can't speak for every single one of them. But what do you think drove these former slaves or current slaves to fight for the federal government? Well, I, I don't mean... I am not trying to make them all into heroes because I, th- I think that a lot of them, to be perfectly honest, were impressed. Like, I don't think... I think they were forced to enlist. I think some of them absolutely understood that they were fighting for freedom, but I don't think all of them willingly enlisted. I think that many of them did. And so I don't think there's one pat answer. I think it's very similar. Like, there are stories of white men being impressed by Nathan Bedford Forrest's forces right here in Franklin to fight for the Confederates. And they didn't willingly fight for the Confederates. There's, I think some of these black men didn't want to fight and were forced to fight. So I don't know that there's one pat answer. I think that some of them wanted to fight and were very clear about it, like Freeman. And then some of them maybe didn't want to fight. And then more the more they got into it, their motivations may have changed. And some of them wanted to fight from the get-go. But I will say one thing I think is really interesting about Tennessee, and like I said, I'm very much of a kind of a self-taught historian. So I'm always a little bit like unsure uh, sometimes about what I'm going to (laughs) say. But one thing that I didn't know when I started, I was taught, like I think most people are taught, is that the Emancipation Proclamation freed the slaves, Mm -hmm. right? But what I didn't know until I started doing this is that the Emancipation Proclamation, the part that freed the slaves, did not apply to Tennessee. So there's like this fine print, right, that says, except Tennessee. Yeah. But there was this thing called the Second Confiscation Act, right, mm-hmm. that said that if you were a Confederate and you had slaves, then your, and your slaves could run away and get behind military line, like federal lines, then they could be free. And I always think, wow, if I were this person that was being held in bondage and against my will, and I heard about this thing that said, if I could get behind, if I could get to a military camp, I would be free and my kids would be free. Like that is putting the ball in my court. Mm -hmm. And it is putting in my own hands a mechanism for my own freedom. Like for the first time, it is like, here are the keys to the kingdom. Here's a way for you to free yourself. And this is like before military service is even a way of getting freedom. I think that's like a really interesting piece of this whole puzzle. So many women, children, men fled to Fort Granger here in Franklin and Camp Brentwood in Brentwood and Fort Negley in Nashville seeking freedom. And then and then the men were sort of scooped up and put into these regiments to fight. I just think that's like a very interesting piece of this whole puzzle that we don't really think about very much. And then when they came back at the end of the war, the men who fought, how were they looked at? Were they looked at differently by the people who, like the whites who had stayed here? They knew. I mean, sure, they knew who had fought. And was Freeman looked at differently? He was still considered a, 
a man of some stature. The white newspaper ran an obituary about him. They said that he was highly respected by white, you know, quote unquote, whites and coloreds alike. I just wonder um, how that all affected relationships. I wouldn't want to go back and live in that time, but I do wish, you know, maybe for a day I could like put on my invisibility cloak and wander around. Well, that's why I love you telling these two men's stories because you're telling them in the context of, we're not just hearing their own story, but in the context of greater Williams County, Tennessee and American history. And we can tell you love it too. I do. (laughs) So before we're finished, tell us about the pavers and what people can do. Uh, Yes. Thank you. Thank you for that opportunity. So I, I just wanted these stories to get out there. I wanted these, like I said, I wanted these men not to be forgotten because when I started researching them, like I said, there's about 300 of them so far. And I know there's more that I haven't found. And there's only three headstones here in Williamson County. From what I have found, only about 20 of them have headstones at the Nashville National Cemetery of those who died during the war. And many of them don't have headstones at all. And I just felt like they are just going to be forgotten. These are men who were born enslaved. They have no birth certificates. In some cases, other than their military enlistments, there will be no record of their lives on earth at all. And so I felt like if we could do something that would remember who they were, it would be great. And I I found out about, I mean, I knew that there was a veterans park here in Franklin. If you haven't been, it's at Five Points, right in downtown Franklin. It's right in front of the Williamson County Archives. Stan Tyson, who's a veteran from here in Williamson County, started it many years ago. And anybody from Williamson County can sponsor a brick paver for a veteran. And it costs $65. It's run by the Veteran Service Office here in Williamson County. The $65 is what the county charges. You will get a brick paver installed and the name of the veteran and like the war that they served in and the date of service um, and the branch of services inscribed in it. And I had this idea that we could get a paver for each of these 300 men installed. And then I took out my calculator and I was like, 65 Five times 300 and it was like I don't know it was like 13 or 14 thousand dollars and my husband was like could we just get them one paper <laughs> and I was no. like no we can't that's not the point like I want them each to have one and then I had this idea that like we could build like a website where you could click on their name and learn a little bit about each of them. And I wanted the public to sort of have buy-in. Because then my, my friends were like, well, you could just get a grant, right? And you could just wipe it all out at once. You want people to care about yeah, it. Yeah, I want people to care about it. I, I thought it would be great. You could have like a Boy Scout troop sponsor like Freeman or, you know, like a church could sponsor Granville. And then people would get to know them and know their stories. I just didn't want to do it all at once. I mean, yes, it would be great to do it all at once. I don't want to be doing this until I'm 80. I wanted people to care about each one and have some buy-in about each one. So you can go to slaves2soldiers.com and you can click on their names and you can learn a little bit about each person. And then you can click on a button and you can donate the $65. We charge just the $65. There's no overhead. Every paper that's sponsored by February 15th will go in the following Memorial Day. So it's a great, I think it's just a great way to get kids involved. We are hoping that like maybe a family will look on the website maybe for a last name or a date or a location. These men, many of them ran away during the Civil War and listed as far away as New York City, Chicago, Cleveland. So maybe look for a city 
that speaks to you or a place or a name. Or people who are his- historical enthusiasts like us. Mm-hmm. A great gift to somebody yes. in your life who's yeah. like us. You can say, hey, I bought this exactly. for you. Exactly. You know? We did a big push for Father's Day. You don't know what to get dad for Father's Day or yeah. birthday or Veterans Day, you know. Buy one in honor of that veteran in your family. You know, I'm hoping that people will really take it up. Because $65 really isn't it's not all that, that much yeah. money. It's not that much, so... Well, this was great. Thank you so much. Thank you for having yeah. me. Absolutely. I think we can probably figure out some other topic to talk about sometime. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that was our interview with Tina Jones. Thank you for listening. If you want to support this podcast and add some great books to your library, we have a couple weeks left for you to take advantage of a discount that we have on our online store. If you go to store.boft.org, and make your purchases and at checkout use the coupon code PODCAST18. So that's all lowercase letters, PODCAST18. You can receive 10% off your order. That will help us out and add some great things to your collection. Also keep up with us by following us on Instagram. You can find us at BOFT1864. And you can keep track of the things that we're doing. We'll post some pictures that Tina sends us that go along with this episode. So thank you so much for listening. Bye.